All right. Welcome to the podcast. You are listening to Behind the Movement. I'm Kyle Fincham. I'm happy you're listening. Um, Just the other day, I had a really uh, wonderful and interesting conversation with Devin Kelly, so I'll be sharing that with you today. Uh, I'll make my announcements real quick, and then we won't waste any time. We'll get right into into the conversation. Um, so a few events coming up, um, on Saturday, June 19th at 9am, I'll be facilitating infinite play in Miami, Florida. So if you're in the Miami area, I would love to see you there and you can sign up through the website, movementbrooklyn.com. There's an events page. Um, and then next month I'll be heading back to Boulder for a week. Um, the block, block 1750 in Boulder is, uh, hosting a, a five day movement research event with, uh, various teachers across numerous disciplines. Um, I think it's going to be a really, uh, um, exciting event. I'm excited to, to, you know, get to connect with these other teachers and, and take their workshops along with teaching my own, um, so that is July 12th through the 16th. And if you're interested, you can go to block1750.com to sign up. Uh, and we'll also put a link on our website at movementbrooklyn.com. And then right after that event, that Sunday, which I believe is the uh, 18th of July, I will be facilitating infinite play in San Diego, California. So if you're in the Southern California area, I would love to see you there for that one. Um, yeah, just like the rest, you can go to our website to sign up. Those are my announcements. I think um, there's uh, some things brewing in the future for more events. Um, have been having some conversations with some friends in Europe so I, I think that there's a, a good shot that maybe we'll be headed to, to do some infinite play uh, in Europe in the fall. Um, so yeah, keep an eye out for that. Obviously anything could happen. Um, so we'll see. It would be lovely to, uh, to, to get out there. Yeah, that's what I got. Let's get to this. Um, I got to uh, speak with Devin Kelly recently. Um, our... Mutual friend Bruce She, who is a teacher out at Locomotion in New York, Long Island, uh, put us in touch. Uh, Bruce is a, a a great teacher. We got to connect recently while I was out there uh, doing Infinite Play uh, about a month and a half or two months ago. And um, yeah, he shot me a message and was like, "Hey, I think it'd be cool if you got to speak with." with Devin Kelly on the podcast, I can put you in touch. And we quickly connected and uh, got something scheduled and we spoke this week. Um, he is in in Bali. So uh, big time difference. We spoke while it was uh, the morning here, nighttime there. So he got to tell me about the future a little bit. Um, if you're not familiar with uh, Devin's work, let me give you a little bit of his bio here. Um, 
Devin is a teacher and he currently divides his time between teaching narrative excavation, writing, and coaching physical practice. Narrative excavation is an introspective psychology practice that he's been developing since 2013. After half a lifetime of competitive sports, overlapping with five years of full-time study in philosophy and psychology, followed by a decade deep dive into Eastern psycho-spiritual disciplines and various physical disciplines, uh, all of these brought to his attention the egregious shortcomings of existing approaches to learning, development, and self-understanding. His approach to physical training and narrative excavation attempts to reframe personal development within a paradigm of sustainable, value-oriented practice. Um, I really enjoyed getting to connect with Devin. Um, we, we, we dug into a lot of things here, and uh, yeah, I'm really happy to share it with you. So let's get to it. Here it is. This is my conversation with Devin Kelly. For me, um, and you know, from my, my perspective, I had, um, I had little to do with Ido coming up. I mean, he was a huge, his perspective in general, I'll talk, maybe talk a little bit about that later. was a huge, um, I mean, it was, it, it was a, it was a force to be reckoned with. I think no matter where you were at that time, you know, if you were interested in movement, it was hard to ignore what he was doing. And his perspective changed a lot for me and, and definitely influenced how I saw what I was doing long-term. Um, but other than that, you know, I, I only studied with a few of his students and like, and had connections with people who had studied with him, but never studied directly with him. So um, yeah. And so I, I don't know, I think both of us have kind of like a, a, a different and sort of fringe unique perspective on things. Um, then I'm, I'm interested to hear where you're coming from because I've, I've read some of your stuff. I've looked at your posts recently and um, yeah, you're, you're, you're clearly, clearly someone who thinks for himself. So I, I'd like to, yeah, I'd, I'm, I'm excited. To, I'm excited to, to pick your brain on some, some, some of the pressing questions and, and things that excite me about, um, about coaching as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I, as I was reading your stuff, I was like, well, I might have to put like a, uh, a timer down on this one because I feel like the, the two of us might be able to, to jam for a bit here. Um, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, I studied online with Ido for like five years. I went to movement camp four times. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously I, I, I found value or I wouldn't have kept going, you know what I mean? Um, mm-hmm. however, I, I, I felt like there was, <clears throat> as I've, I've been doing some like writing here, thinking about these things that like, and I don't think it was intentional. And I don't think it started this way, but I got the feeling that like movement culture was becoming kind of a dogma and a dogma has like walls and, and ways around it. And I found myself being a little more interested in a culture of movement which is slightly different to me in the sense that like, uh, as I was trying to put the words together, I reached out to a friend and I said to him, I was like, well, if I say movement culture is a dogma, what would you say a culture of movement is? And he said Mm. a water course way, which I thought was very poignant in terms of, um, you know, that flexibility and that adaptability and looking at environments and people and within ourselves and kind of like 
molding to whatever that situation looks like, whether it's the seasons or whether it's the, the, the times of day or whatever, and, and addressing those things as they unfold, as opposed to being within those walls and doing it that way every time. Um, and that was kind of my experience. And that's what I found myself kind of being drawn a little more towards. Um, but I would say in the beginning, it started off as like a, a challenging of like individual expression because I started looking around and just seeing things that looked and felt the same. Not that it wasn't beautiful and not that it wasn't amazing, but it was all kind of the same. Um, but I've grown to, to think that even that was not really the, the, the value that I, I wish to express and share because that's kind of like inward pointing this individual expression thing. And I was like, well, what's something that's a little more outward facing. And that's kind of, how I've drawn myself into where I'm at now. Outward facing. What do you mean by that? I spoke with this guy named Steven Jenkinson for the podcast. And I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. read any of his stuff or listened to him speak or anything. And um, he wrote a book called Die Wise. And he worked in what he calls the death trade um, mm -hmm. and has a lot of, I don't want to kind of read his resume, but a, a, a lot of, philosophical background and a lot of studying, it seems like of indigenous knowledge and things like that. And, you know, challenges how we have our relationship with death and how we approach death. And at one point when I was interviewing him, I asked him about his sculpting and I said something about individual expression. And he said, you know, I'm not so interested in individual expression. I'm really interested in, in being a citizen, you know? So oftentimes okay. artistic expression is, is pointed at myself and it's about the individual. But he's yeah. like, well, what, what does art look like if it is an act of citizenry? And I think that that kind of starts to transcend into, into anything. You know, well, what, what, does, what does this conversation look like if it's a, a, an yes. act of a citizen as opposed to an act of an, an individual? And it might look the same, but the approach might be indifferent or the intention might be different. And obviously, okay. I don't like hit the bullseye every time, but I, I start kind of looking at things through that lens a little bit. I really like that. That's a, that's a subject. That's so funny that you, that you put it that way, because I've been thinking a lot about that recently, mm -hmm. specifically how you, the word you use citizenry. Mm -hmm. um, and for me, um, the, the phrase that I, that I keep coming back to is uh, civic value. Mm -hmm. Not, not in like a, not in a, not in a, uh, like a means to an end sense. But if I ask myself, for example, what is my civic value? It's really, a, it's, that's a, it puts me in a relational context, not as like a somewhat, not as something to be used by others in my community, but as, but as someone who understands himself as in, intrinsically connected to a, an ecosystem, you know, and, and, and as I get older now, uh, uh, I'm not that old yet. I'm, coming up on 33 here, uh, but I, I think more and more about this kind of uh, civic value. Like, what am I really doing here? And, it, you know, the, the, I've never really fancied myself an artist, but um, the less and less sort of artistic expression for its own sake is, is it is less, it's less attractive to me as time goes on. And, and, um, not that it doesn't have any value for its own sake, because I think then that 
that uh, practice and expression can be extrapolated and it can be extracted and applied in the, in the context of civic value. Um, but for me, I've, I've, I find that it gives me so much more uh, feeling and so much more, uh, I feel, I, I feel, man, sometimes English really lacks certain words because motivation is so lame, you know, it's not, it's not motivation that I'm looking for. Um, yeah, it's like, it's like a sense of, uh, both motivation and fulfillment at the same time. Uh, when I think about doing something, when I think about going to, um, a facility to train or to practice, or when I think about doing a call with my student, or when I think about, um, teaching my psychology practice, it's, it's like, If I'm thinking about things in a very selfish context, like what, what does this practice mean to me? What is my legacy? What is my, you know, what, I, what am I trying to say with this? What is my message? It feels less meaningful. It feels less, less fulfilling than, than asking questions of like, what, what am I really doing here in terms of civic value? What, what kind of culture am I generating? And what kind of, um, how am I helping people I don't know. Again, I'm falling short on words here, but I think, I think you understand what I mean. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I, I, I don't know, I relate in so many ways because, you know, I, you know, obviously it's all one life, but I had a, a whole other life before I, before I taught movement or shared movement or whatever the hell it is that I do. Um, you know, I did stand up comedy for 10 years in New York. Oh, City. I didn't know that. That was my, that was my life. You know, I, I dropped out of college when I was 20 and moved to New York and did stand up. And, you know, it's taken a long time for me to like, people will ask all the time, well, like, why did you stop doing it? And, you know, I stopped short. I would kind of bring it back to like, you know, um, I, I wasn't satisfied with what I was doing artistically or it didn't feel, you know, I couldn't put the words to it. It kind of like the, I think that feeling you were just having, you're like, Oh, like it's so complex. Where are the words? Um, mm. But I, I realized what it came down to is that it was in the beginning I did it. Obviously there was something really, there's a lot of satisfaction, but in the beginning, I think I was creating something that was more um, an act of like being a citizen or um, in the sense that mm. I, 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 I wasn't so selfish about it, you know? And then very quickly I realized, well, I have to pay rent. Uh, you know, there's status that comes with like having money and, and status that comes with like being able to perform on certain stages. And mm -hmm. I, I quickly adapted my act the, into a way that I could get work. So I was basically doing it for greed. So I spent, you mm -hmm. know, six, seven years, like developing this greed act so that I could work, but mm -hmm. it, it changed what I did. And, and over time I can look back and see how dramatic that change was from where it began. Sure. And, you know, that's why after being able to reflect on that, that's why I don't compromise now because I know what that feeling is like to have done a, a, an artistic act selfishly. And, and, and what yeah. that looks like at the end of it. A hundred percent. Yeah. And yeah, I relate to that a lot. I think I learned that lesson the hard way too. I, w I used to, in, in high school and um, early university, I made my money by uh, playing out in bars. So I would 
play guitar and sing. So I was stage performer, but I would, so, but solo. So I would play guitar, sing the blues, jazz, and very, very kind of old school stuff. And I kind of did what I wanted, but over time I noticed the same thing that you pointed out that I was really catering to the bar audience, to the restaurant audience. And, you know, people want to, people want to hear songs that they know. People want to hear songs that they can sing along to. They recognize um, they like interesting stuff. They like new takes sometimes, but mostly they just want something that's going to either fade into the background at a restaurant or they want something that's going to, um, that they can recognize and sing along to at a bar. So, you know, over, over the years, noticing myself mold to that expectation, I, I felt disgusted at myself and, and I became completely disinterested in the practice of, of playing actually over time. It, it destroyed the, the actual art itself for me. Um, and, uh, I have attempted to rediscover it at various points, but as life moves on, so, so did my interests, but I, I really relate, I relate to that a lot. Um, and yeah, I'm curious to know, like for you, what are, what are some of the, as a coach, you know, as a, as a, I guess you're a full-time professional coach now, right? Well, I mean, listen, COVID changed everything. I'm teaching much less than I was uh, a right. year and a half ago. But, you know, I'm a, I'm a full-time human who enjoys movement at the moment. Okay. And, share, sure. and, share, and shares it when I can. Mm-hmm. So, so, like, for you, as, as a teacher, uh, I mean, I, I would categorize you as a teacher, uh, even if you, you, you might disagree with that terminology. I think you're a teacher. And so, as a, as a teacher, like... Uh, what are, what are some things that you what what are some pressing issues for you in terms of the things that you're thinking about in, in terms of you you say being a um a, uh, what's the word you use citizen citizen being a citizen and also like yeah what does it mean to you to be a citizen in the context of being a teacher now what are some of the most pressing issues or challenges that you run into or just one and what and or or Instead, if, yeah. if you prefer, what's the most exciting, you know, thing that you're, that you're working on at the moment? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Um, I actually, it's, it's, so, it's so funny to be receiving a question on, the, uh, on this podcast. <laughs> um, but okay. I think it's interesting because I, because I think I can turn it around and ask you this, about this similar idea. So, you know, again, to kind of bring it back to that like greed thing and that idea of like living in a country where, you know, growth is kind of a religion, right? We want to keep making more money, more money, and money is like the most sacred thing that we have and success is measured by that. Yes. The way we keep doing that is, is at least in this world and probably in most things, you know, creating some sort of dependence, right? So I need people to be dependent on me or my product for me to continue making money and moving forward. And for me, teaching movement, that meant that I wasn't teaching people how to fish. I was bringing them in and fishing for them or fishing with them or sometimes just handing them fish. Mm-hmm. And for me, uh, uh, a pressing idea is how do I teach people to fish, right? Because, yeah. you know, as much as I was able to make money on that, there was a dependence that was created on me to always be there and always be available. And, and I, I realized that might've been a bit of a disservice that I would prefer to have people who can walk out into the world and have the tools to be able to fish on their own. So I've thought a lot about like, 
well, what does it look like if I were to share ideas about kind of building a practice so that I'm not necessarily needed so that you have the tools to look at it yourself and, and, and decide, do I want to go fish in the stream or do I want to fish in the lake? Where are there going to be more fish today? Like what kind of lure should I use? Um, is it the right mm. time of year or whatever, as opposed to Kyle, should I do this? Kyle, should I do that? You know, it's, um, but it means also like, well, how do I reconcile with like, um, money in the measure of success in, in kind of the world we live in? Um, mm -hmm. that's kind of something that I've been thinking about. I don't know if it's something that you, you face as well, uh, because, you know, I, I, you know, you're a teacher and, and, and you have, a you know, online programming and things like that. Yeah. But with, with me, that's, it's, it's very strange because mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if it's just, I don't know if it's the skill set that I've developed over time or if it's just dumb luck, but, um, and I, I also don't know if this mentality comes from growing up in New Hampshire, live free or die, mm -hmm. but I, I have very much have that mentality and that I've always been like, you know, not always, you know, I obviously, like I described to you with my, my music thing, I've, I've been through the system where I compromised and I tried to cater and I tried to be useful in a way that kept people dependent and coming back for more. Um, and I did that with yoga as well, to a certain extent when I was teaching yoga for, for all those years. Um, but lately in the last half a decade of my life, I'd say I've been very, um, stubborn and I don't really give any thought to return clients or like bringing people back or, um, and I have this mentality, like, I'm going to do, I'm going to give you what is valuable. I'm, I'm, I'm going to do my best to, to assess really what I think is the most valuable thing for you long-term, even if you can't see it. I'm going to do my best to assess that and give it to you. And I don't care if I make any money in the process or if I die trying that that's been my kind of like gung ho mentality, if you will, over the past five years or six years. And like I say, whether it's luck or whether it's, it's a combination of that and, and my skill set that I've developed over time. I mean, people keep finding use in what I'm doing. And I don't, I don't think it's the same kind of dependent use that you described. Like people don't come back to me for programming because they need me. They come back to me for different things each time. And I think that's a success. Mm -hmm. um, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, um, it's something that I, I continue to like kind of tackle and, and think about, you know, um, mm. because, uh, you know, I've, especially since I stopped doing online coaching, I've gotten to go through this process of being like, oh, like how, how do I fish? What is that? What does that mean? Like, what is, what is, how do I navigate? Like, this, this mountain range that's in front of me without mm -hmm. like, you know, someone kind of holding my hand and, and walking me all the way there. I, I suppose that question may be more pressing to me when I have kids, you know, and when I have like a lot more financial responsibility and, um, mm -hmm. you know, other people's lives are in my hands. Mm -hmm. I think I'll probably have to address that question in much different ways. And I'll feel the pressure a lot more, you know, to create a sustainable, because now it's like, you know, I make enough to where I can, I can live and I can do my projects and I can continue to coach and I can continue to train. Um, I'm not like setting aside a crazy amount of money or anything, but I can save money, you know, and so I'm fine. I don't really have to think too much about, oh, I have to change this to please people a little bit more. I have the luxury of thinking, okay, how can I be deeply useful to people in ways that maybe they don't even recognize? Um, 
And so, yeah, that may change as I get older, as, you know, family responsibility comes into the picture and house and building a house uh, to, to more permanently stay in. Um, but yeah, yeah, I like, I, I like the way you put it. And I, I, I also like that we're, we get the opportunity to talk about this and in front of other people, because I think a lot of people don't know that coaches struggle with these kind of questions, you know, mm-hmm. we're that we're, we're thinking a lot about that. We are kind of some of, some of us are pulled in different directions mm-hmm. in terms of try, trying to be useful and also trying to make money and, and with the pressures of demand versus what, what, what people think they need versus what they actually need. Um, we, well, because we're also praying, you know, I shouldn't say praying. We are playing to like <laughs> careful. <laughs> well, no, because I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm already thinking ahead of what I want to say. I, um, you know, we're playing to something very personal with people. You know what I mean? Mm. And, and, you know, there's, there's certain instincts that come with that. And it makes me think a lot about like uh, this conversation I had with Matan Lefkovich on okay. uh, here on the podcast. I don't know if you, if you're familiar with him um, and he, he's interesting and, in, in, you know, there are a number of things that he, he was critical of, but one of them was um he was skeptical about the idea of community in movement and, and, you know, because it's thrown around and we see it in everywhere. I mean, I remember when I was kind of dipping my toes in like the CrossFit world in the beginning, like it's like the buzzword, but I also feel like everywhere I turn, like it's something about community. It's like, we work as a community and then Mm. sure whole foods is a community as well. I don't know. Everything's a community. Um, But he was skeptical of uh, the idea of community and movement um, because, you know, people come together in movement in a community because of their similarities, right? Mm-hmm. And he said, and I might butcher it a little bit, but he basically said that, you know, to him, a real community is a group of people who stay together despite their differences. Okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we, we, we use that word community to kind of like prey on these primal instincts that we have, right? Yeah. We, we have a primal instinct for social networking and like being with people and being in tribes. Um, yeah. So we're actually lured in with that word. It's, it's, it carries so much weight um, only to often discover that what it really is, is not that, that thing that we like seek in our, in our like deeper intelligence, right? right? Because like the moment we change or our ideas change or our approach changes, we, we have the potential to not be part of that community anymore. Yeah. Which you ran into, right? Uh, Yeah. Kind of head on. Yeah. Interesting. I want to get to that, but like, uh, yeah, I 100% feel you. And I think you're right. It is kind of that word is kind of cheapened and thrown around as bait mm-hmm. as well. And I, I think I'd agree with, sorry, what's his name? Matan. Matan. And I was listening to um, a, uh, a psychologist speak recently. Uh, I can't remember her name for the life of me, but she was speaking about how um, there's a lot of contemporary research being done about uh, school, the traditional public schooling method and how kids are grouped into um, the same age group and they're kind mm-hmm. of isolated w- within their same age group. Whereas in real sort of um, more organic tribal communities or even older communities and uh, 
you know, before public education became what it is now, it was more, it was more a mix of age groups. Uh, and, you know, we, yeah. and, and that's, that's kind of important for, for development. I think for, and I would agree with her that it's very important for development because you, you get this kind of, uh, you learn differently from, from people who are of different ages and you get a kind of, um, they hold you accountable in different ways. They mentor you in different ways and you mentor them. And like that, that uh, I don't like this. I'm not using the word diversity in, in the sort of woke sense that's become popular now, but that kind of diversity of, of age groups and diversity of, as your, as your, as your guest put it, um, viewpoints or interests uh, that I think that facilitates some, something of that aspect of community that is so crucial to our development. Um, and I, I'd add another layer to that as well and say like, not, not only is that missing from movement culture or whatever you want to call it, I'm, I'm not criticizing it per se, but in the way that it's expressed most of the time, uh, the other thing that's missing is also, um, it's not actually a community. Like the, we, we throw that word around too easily, I guess is my point. It's, it's way too, it's, it's like the, it's like the way people throw around the word friend. Mm -hmm. It's disgusting to me. I don't like it because mm -hmm. it, for me, a friend is somebody who, if I make plans with them, if I get a, you know, a, a better, uh, a, a better deal or a better opportunity or a better, you know, some other option that comes along, I'm not going to cancel my plans with that person. No way, no way in hell. I die first. You know what I mean? And the same, the same with, uh, the same with them. They wouldn't do that to me either. And, it, and it's, and it's not so, it, it's not so much about this like sort of blind loyalty thing, but a sense of interdependence and a sense of relying on each other and a sense of trusting each other and this kind of deep trust and knowing that you have each other's back and you're looking out for each other's well-being in a deep way. I think this is what for, and, and also being intrinsically dependent on each other to a certain extent is an aspect of community, not in an unhealthy, dysfunctional way. Uh, do I mean dependent, but like in the same way that the, the baker is dependent on the plumber mm -hmm. and the plumber is dependent on the baker, you know? Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I think these kind of deep aspects of trust and interdependence are missing from these kind of more superficial expressions of community. I'm sorry, your CrossFit gym's not, I mean, you, you may have acquaintances there, but it's not a community. It's not when do or die comes and, you know, you're, I mean, there may be some, I'm, I'm being unfair. There may be some that are, that are deeper than others, but in general, I think we're missing that, that kind of depth that would normally define community in the sense that you and I are talking about. Yeah. Well, I sometimes wonder, and I, and I've said this to some people after, and, I, and honestly, like it, it wasn't something that I spent a ton of time thinking of before I spoke to Matan, but it's something that I've reflected on quite a bit and, uh, you know, taken kind of my scope and looked at things. But I've said to people, I'm like, you know, if you're saying the word, I'm, I'm, I'm curious why, right? Is it because you're trying to get more members? Because that's mm. fine if that's the case, but maybe at least know that. But if, if you're building something and you think that it, that there's value and that it's interesting and that you're open to, you know, all the different things and all the changes and, and evolutions, maybe just let it become what it is. And maybe that's a community, maybe that's a tribe, let, you know, and not necessarily need to use the word. 
because mm. it, it does, it, it plays on heartstrings. And that's a, that's a delicate thing. I think that we need to be, you know, really careful about, you know, how we communicate with people when we start kind of going in these directions, because they, they, they play to these like deeper things. It's not just like the surface area knowledge, right? It's like, we're playing yes. to like our mammalian and reptilian parts of our, our, our evolution. Right. Right. For sure. Yeah. It, and I was thinking about what you were saying about education and, you know, I don't know if you've ever read this book, Sand Talk. Um, no. It's so great. It's, a, a, um, it's written by a man from Australia who's part of an indigenous culture there. And he talks quite a bit about this, about like this, like these relationships between different generations, you know, mm-hmm. and how important and how kind of... Um, how much value is placed on that. And Mm -hmm. in our case, I'm like, you know, we don't, I don't know about you, but I'm like, we don't seem to have elders in relationships with elders, you know, and that's where so much, and that's where so much of that information comes from. You know, that's, you know, I think, you know, about like when, when, when COVID started hitting some of like the native American cultures here in the United Mm -hmm. States. And it was like, a bum rush to try to like protect their elders because they were like, well, these are the people with our culture and our sure. language and the stories. And, um, and yeah, we don't feel that way, do we? I guess. Uh, yeah. I think, I think to myself, like, you know, maybe some of the, the things like this misunderstanding of community, maybe there's more of them. There probably are more of them. And we would have a little bit more of that knowledge if we had relationships with elders that transcended generations so that we would have it, you know, relationships with our ancestors. Sure. Yeah. Generational wisdom and yeah. And mentorship I think is, is really missing. And um, in a way, I think we have an interesting opportunity because of that. And we have now because of information technology, we have the ability to step into that, to, to fill that role in a different way because we can acknowledge now that maybe, the culture has changed and that is now missing for one reason or another. And so how do we fill that role? And it's interesting because I listen to people like um, Jordan Peterson, who's become this now international famous phenomena of a psychologist uh, in he's entered the mainstream view. And when you watch his interviews, when he gets moved the most, you know, when he's speaking about his work, and, and what he reports that people tell him the most is, is that his work serves as sort of like this kind of generational wisdom and mentorship for a lot of young men. Hmm. And I find that very interesting that people are able to find that now in other sources rather, you know, they're looking and what, what, what the intro, the broad and widespread interest in his work definitely demonstrates is that there's a demand for that. And there's a demand for deep, practical life wisdom, you know, and, and to have that role filled. But I don't know, because I'm not, I'm not one of these kind of golden age traditionalists where I think we need to return to traditional values all the time and traditional expressions of those values, culturally speaking. I think we can learn from that and also learn new creative ways to fill those roles and to, and to do those same functions. Um, yeah. Yeah. 
I, I agree. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm with you. I'm not, I'm not saying that we need to step back into our 75 person tribes either. But I think the thing that I, I do struggle with and the questions that I have, and, and I don't have answers, but I, I do struggle with the potential that like, from like an evolutionary perspective, we haven't traveled much, we haven't traveled too far from where we were at in, in smaller tribes. And now we're in this age yeah, of no. like technology and, you know, some cities are millions of people and, but we still have these, like, from an evolutionary perspective, we're still in like 75 person tribe world. And we're like, yeah, we do look for elders and we, you know, we, we, we yeah. do only interact with these smaller groups and we don't quite understand large numbers and, and things like that. Yeah. I wrote, I wrote about this in, in a, in an, a very long article that I recently published on my, on my member site, like it's called a portrait in the style of perspectivism. And, and one of the points that I made that I think would probably hit people the hardest, uh, according to the feedback that I got was that if we were to, I, I put it this way, like if we were to travel together, you and I on a time traveling train and we got on the train together and as we're looking out the window, and we're watching this, the landscape pass by, each stop for the train would be like a decade. You know what I mean? Uh, or uh, I don't know. Yeah, let's say, let's say a decade. It wouldn't really take more than like 15, 20, 30 stops along the way. You know, we'd be on the train for like a day before we started looking out the window at entire cultures that believed... Um, sacrificing animals was a great way to improve crop yields mm -hmm. um that um that things like witchcraft exist and um and evil spirits and and you know making all these kinds of mistakes about causality the mechanistic causality in the sense that we now understand things to be different now my point is like, so like that wasn't so far, that wasn't so far in the past. And biologically speaking, if, if, if we were to be suddenly transported at birth into any of those cultures and we just suddenly ended up at one of those train stations, we, we wouldn't know we were at that train station. We would think just like the people at that train station for the most part, Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so so I agree with you. I think, I think that, you know, maybe biologically, biophysically, we haven't really changed and it's, uh, we're running into a lot of these same problems, which I think is like why it's so important when we look at issues like the COVID situation that we're going through right now and our sort of inability to agree on basic sets of facts and, um, the, 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 politiciz the politicization and uh, dogmatic attitude at almost every turn. The mistakes that are being made in terms of reasoning are mistakes that have been made for thousands of years. And we can see them documented. We know that. We know that they've been made and we know that people are uh, uh, susceptible to these kinds of fallacious reasoning and mistakes of, of trying to to understand, trying to understand the world, but just falling into, just consistently falling into pitfalls along the way. Um, it's, 
And these mistakes are one of the great things about studying history and philosophy and psychology is that these mistakes are well documented. We understand them very well. And so why then, why then is there not a basic, as part of like basic life upbringing, child rearing, you know, like creating powerful individuals in the world, why, why are we not educated in logic, basic reasoning skills, um, philosophy? You know, when you study philosophy, you're encouraged to look at things from so many different perspectives. It's like, okay, here's a question and here's an opinion about that question. What would that same question and what would that same opinion look like if we were to view it through the lens of a 1900s uh, a philosopher in Germany? What would this lens, what would it look like through the lens of epistemology or phenomenology or what would it look like through standard logic or ethics? Um, like to see and, and to also see that all of these viewpoints, all of these different perspectives can provide a very, a very reasonable, a very reasonable view that might contradict other views, but we can see it. We can be like, oh yeah, okay, that, I see how that would make sense. That's interesting. I hadn't thought of it that way. Whereas now it feels like everyone's looking around, including, including inside the movement community, inside the fitness community, inside, inside the, the virology community, inside the political communities around the world. Everyone's looking around and they're being like, any, any perspective or opinion that doesn't fit into my paradigm and what I think is right, they must be absolutely out of their goddamn minds. They, mm -hmm. must, be, they must be insane. They must be... They must be selfish psychopathic narcissistic um completely like emotionally immature they they must be unreasonable and the, the failure to see the possibility of other opposing reasonable sides of arguments and other reasonable perspectives that are very different from your own and to fit that into a sense of community or a sense of um civic engagement I think is probably one of the worst failures that we could, that, that we've seen. I think we're failing at that miserably right now. Well, I think that we <laughs> yeah. always, you know, we jump to like, you know, the, the, the differing opinion is like somehow evil or something. And, and I don't know about you and I think you would agree, but I truthfully believe that everybody is doing the best with the information that they have. Like everybody yeah. is aspiring for goodness, rightness, whatever the words are. And everybody is limited by whatever information they have. And the only way that like we can actually create bridges is by mm -hmm. having conversations and being like, hey, let's meet in the middle of a bridge and share some ideas and talk about some things and mm. be able to kind of like return to our islands and be like, hey, let me tell you about this thing that I heard as opposed to being like, Sure. Not only am I not meeting you in the middle of the bridge, but I'm blowing up the bridge. Yeah, yeah, right. And why did that happen to you, do you think? What, what happened when you tried to have that conversation? And Because uh, my impression was that you were largely shut down and kick, kicked out the door. You know, I mean, I, I understand there may be certain constraints in what you want to discuss, but I'm curious. Um, I think, you know, it's so funny. So I'm reading Carl Jung's autobiography right now. I don't know if you've ever mm -hmm. read it. Um, I have, yeah. And, you know, I always feel like I have to point out when I talk about books on the podcast that as much as I read, I probably only retain 40%. And it's always the 40% that I feel like is like resonating with whatever I'm going through. 
but I, I found it interesting when they talked about, uh, or when he talks about his relationship with Freud and how yeah. Freud really wanted Jung to be like a disciple. And, and as you know, Freud got closer to like the end of his life or was older, he really saw what he was doing as a religion, right? And, okay. and there was a dogma there and there was a, a butting heads when Jung didn't subscribe to the dogma. And I think Jung was like gonna be putting out a book where he kind of challenged some of Freud's ideas Mm-hmm. And he was like, well, this is going to be the end of my relationship with Freud. And, and Jung's wife was like, no, 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 he'll be fine. He's, 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 he, he'll want to hear your new ideas. And he's like, no, no, because he's not in that place of like curiosity anymore. You know, he's not in that place of like asking questions. It's like, he's in a place of answers and I'm in a place of asking questions. Yes. And that, um, and he was right. It was like after he put out that book and expressed some just differing ideas or, or posing some new questions. Mm-hmm. Freud decided that, that it was over, that the relationship mm. was done. And I think that that's kind of not to put myself on a, on a pedestal with young, but it was this, the story is that like, this is not a new phenomenon. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like this thing has gone on for a while. And I think that when we give up our curiosity and when we stop asking questions and when we just have answers and certainty, new questions feel really, can feel really challenging. And for me in my experience, um, and obviously there's so much nuance and things that could go on there that it was just that like, I had curiosity and, and, and ideas and, and not, not anything that I was certain about, but just posing questions as opposed to like subscribing to the, the already written answers. And, yes. and that really challenged what, from where I was sitting and in the experience I was in, had become a dogma. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, I mean, obviously we can both probably speculate about what it feels like to be in that position of, of uh, being immersed in a dogma. Mm-hmm. And feeling threatened or challenged by an idea, not being not being comfortable with with challenging certain premises. Um, but I'm curious to like, like, what if I turn the question on its head? Mm-hmm. So that's the that's the challenge, right? That mm-hmm. we're we're faced with that position where a lot of people fall into dogma, mm-hmm. a lot of people fall into positions that they're not willing to question. Um, is there anything that you feel like you could have done better to reach them? Um, like better received or yeah i i mean obviously i could have compromised but i think i i said in the beginning that like from my previous like endeavors i was not quite as willing to compromise okay Um, so besides compromise then um i think that perhaps i could have uh you know made more effort to try to uh express my 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 questions in a more accessible way Mm. um but i i I think it's a challenging thing you know what i mean i think when you've given up curiosity to some degree or at least that's how it seems and then you're faced with someone with curiosity i think it's a it's a really challenging thing to like we were just saying you know like you have two different groups politically potentially 
who mm-hmm. are not curious, they are certain, right? So if mm-hmm. you and I walk into the middle with curiosity, they're like, hey, pick a team and stop being curious. Right. And, mm. you know, I, I've been on Maybe there. they even I'm, see curiosity as dangerous too, you know? Yeah. I mean, listen, there were plenty of years there. And, and, and listen, I'm, I'm speaking for myself. I'm not speaking for anybody else. But like, I gave up curiosity. I was not terribly mm. curious. So much so that I had the opportunity to take classes and workshops with people in New York. So everyone comes through New York City. And I had yeah. the opportunity, someone invited me to a workshop with somebody who I had here on the podcast and told me how great the person's teaching was and this and that, but like they weren't part of the dogma I was, I was invested in. So mm-hmm. I didn't go. And after we recorded the podcast, I said to this guest, I was like, Hey, like, I want to just let you know that like, I had the opportunity to take your workshop and, and I'm bummed that I didn't, but here are the reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I was there, I, you know, I, I'm not some sort of like person who was, who was never seduced, you know, um, mm. because it is alluring. It's so wonderful to have certainty and answers and, and curiosity is exhausting. I mean, you know, this, it's like a, that, that, that takes energy and, mm. and it feels so much better to just be like, Hey, like you be curious for me. And then I'll just ride, ride the perfect wave. Sure. Yeah. The, 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 the reason I, the reason I asked that question is because recently I've, I've been, um, having, I, I feel personally challenged by this same, this, this same question. Like as you, as you might've seen on my Instagram, I don't hide my opinion really about anything. Um, and I, I speak out about what I, what I feel about, um, about the COVID situation often. And, and so I get people who often write to me and disagree, uh, avidly and they have led to some really interesting conversations that I've had. And and what I find, what what I found is the pattern for me is that uh, when the conversation gets rolling, usually where it shuts down is when I make a claim. It's like when I, when I actually finally make an assertion, and then they will make a judgment. Okay, I know where this person stands, or it the or the claim is so inaccessible to them. It's so far away from their present perspective that they cannot imagine taking it on, mm. and so they shut down. And then, and so I, I've been experimenting a lot with these kind of conversations and and, and seeing what works in terms of reaching people. Um, because, like I say, a lot of times I get the distinct impression from speaking with these people. Um, they speak, they speak like people who have never really honestly given a fair shake to an opposing opinion. Mm-hmm. Like they have, they, they haven't entertained the idea that somebody on the other side of the fence could actually have a reasonable point of view. And I, I, I get the distinct impression from speaking with people that after, you know, 15 minutes, 20 minutes, an hour of talking to them, even if I paid them everything that I had, they wouldn't be able to accurately um, summarize my point of view. Whereas I feel like I could do that for them mm-hmm. easily. I could mm-hmm. say, here's, here's point A, B, C, and D, um, sub, sub point D, E, and F on each one, you know, like, uh, and they'd be like, yeah, okay. That roughly represents my point of view. I'd be like, okay, got it. But then every time reliably, when they try to do the same for me, they're so far off the mark 
and it's not it's not it's not by uh, it's not a failure of trying on my part either. I, I I continually try to make more nuanced distinctions between what I think and what they think I think, but it it seems to be a failure um, to to break whatever categorizations they have in their mind already. And for me, the only way that I've found to do that, to, to actually break those presumptions and categorizations, I'm being too vague. Um, let's, let's, say, let's, say my position, let's say my position is that it's not a good idea for, um, for otherwise healthy people between the ages of, um, between the ages of 18 to 35 to take the vaccine. Let's just say that's my position, right? And um, when they hear that position, there's going to be a lot of um, attachments that come along to it, along with it for them. They'll think, okay, well, if you take that position, you must have incentive A, B, C, or you must care about this. You must care about one, two, three, four. Um, and so they're, they're assuming kind of your motivations. They're also assuming what other positions might come along with that. And, and for me, oftentimes it's, it's wrong because they, for example, they'll think someone who doesn't want, um, doesn't want to take the vaccine and thinks others shouldn't take it is coming from a place of selfishness. It's coming from a, a space of also narcissism, having a hard time being told what to do. Um, also not caring about other people, having a, a basic failure of empathy for the vulnerable, which is like a trait of psychopaths. Um, so, so they're, they're assuming all these things about your motives and how you feel and why you want this thing that you want. Right. And they've made up their mind about that. Even though my position is not like that, my position comes from a place of civic responsibility. It comes from a place of trying to be a citizen um, and looking out for people's health, looking out for people's long-term long, uh, longevity, well-being. Um, and so their, their view of what I think is very far from what I actually think, right? The only way I've found to break those sort of preconceived categories that they fit me into is, is to be very suggestive instead of, uh, in, instead of making statements. So I suggest, and I kind of hint and I ask questions and I say, instead of saying, you it doesn't seem you understand my perspective. I say, do you think it would be reasonable? Do you think that there's a possibility I could think this and also think this at the same time? Mm. Do you think I could think A and also think B? And they would be th A and B would be something that would probably, I, I'm guessing, would be contradictory in their minds. But I, I frame it, I, I put it to them, and they think, oh yeah, I guess that that's possible. And basically, I run them into a corner until they have nowhere to go but admit that it's possible to think that way and still be a reasonable, caring, compassionate um, citizen. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I, I mean, I'm, 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 I think that oftentimes, and I think this is just the nature of like where we're at in the world, like, you know, saying that so much of it is just like hyper individual, right? That like, mm -hmm. That means that oftentimes people are entering conversations without empathy and compassion. You know what I mean? They're, mm -hmm. they're immediately entering um, even a conversation with these almost like lower level approaches, you know, like anger or, or something. 
um, mm-hmm. as opposed to entering it and being like, well, what, what does this conversation look like if I enter it empathetically, you know, and mm-hmm. being like, oh, like wherever this person is coming from, it is from their perspective with the best intentions and starting there because then right. at least, at least then to me, it's like I'm holding up a bit of a mirror. Like then you can kind, you can see yourself in the other person. And I think that that's always like an important piece. And it's sometimes it's really challenging, you know, but I, I, I feel that where it's like, okay, you know, we, we all are way more similar than we are different. You know what I mean? Mm. And it's like, okay, like I, I can see that like this person cares about their family or, or their, their health or their, right community and and this is this is everybody taking their like their their best jab at it you know um but i think sometimes and maybe oftentimes people are really caught up in like things again like kind of being pointed inward and then that anything that's like different from their inward experience is someone being malicious you know it's you know i think it's always more nuanced than that like when we in movies there's always like the bad the bad person you know, and mm-hmm. that they're just inherently bad. And I, I challenge that. I, I don't think that there, there is actually that much inherently bad. Sometimes I really do believe that people are just like, this is, this is the cards they've been dealt information wise. Yeah. And in information and also development wise, mm-hmm. because like, it's also, it's also a certain it's because it's, it's not only about information. It's also about character. Mm-hmm. for me you know mm-hmm. well i think i think that we often when i say information sometimes it sounds almost too like at the top at the surface that it's like it's what we've read in books and had in conversations mm-hmm. often when i say information i'm like i'm speaking to like the full body of experience yeah okay and i and i think you know we're kind of talking about this idea of like mm, Again, this is something Matan mentioned. Uh, Matan, very wise man. Uh, he he talked about how you know it's important that we have a relationship with three things. One is ourselves, the other is other people, and the third is the natural world. You know, whatever that is, nature. And you know, with that kind of experience, I've reflected on it's like that's that's where things like empathy grow, you know, through broad ranges of exposure. And I think we we have pretty limited exposure, which means that our our information is is limited, you know. Mm. Um so you know while some people can look back at like different times in history and 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 think about like, you know, like you mentioned like sacrificing animals and and doing things for spirits and stuff in some ways there is a real interesting intelligence there. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. I don't have all the details, but the, you know, these were stories that they were telling to kind of speak to the complexity of the world they were existing in. And mm-hmm. they had such a rich uh, relationship with themselves and other people and the natural world that they developed, they had, they, they, they had to develop these stories because they did respect that complexity. Mm-hmm. And, and right now we don't have quite as much exposure, but we try to like knowledge our way through everything. And, mm-hmm. and as, as you and I experienced at different times during this conversation, like knowledge doesn't get us all the way there. There were a couple of times where like, neither one of us could put the words together to talk about the thing that we wanted to say, because 100%. words exist in the realm of knowledge. 
unless we're doing poetry or something. Hmm. Yeah, like the, the, the challenge for me, it, like, and it is, a, I mean, it is a project for me and it is something that I care about and I'm trying to work on because this problem of people not being able to communicate and form real communities, like you say, with diverse opinions um, where we can just really kind of uplift each other in terms of challenges and also adversity, you know, to, to be each other's enemy in a way so to speak in a constructive way mm-hmm. um as nietzsche put it the strong man needs above all else enemies mm-hmm. um that he can respect and yeah so like for me i see two two really crucial aspects to uh to solve this if there's any like i don't, I don't like to put things in terms of problem solution but um like i've gained so much insight by working with people on the practice, psycholo- the psychology practice I've developed called narrative excavation. And it's, and it's really a, a deep dive into, into personal narratives. That's all it is. If, if I were to summarize it briefly, um, it helps people to understand the stories that they've, that they've told themselves and started carrying around with them for, for years um, that they've, that were developed and corroborated in reaction to trauma. Um, and they're all fear-based narratives. So all around being af- afraid of either being alone mm-hmm. or isolated, uh, fear of being defective or bad, or fear of being in danger or unsafe. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these categories of narrative, um, they classify pretty much every, every story that we could tell ourselves as a reaction to a trauma um, in, in terms of this this particular kind of narrative. And so this, this practice helps people to, to observe those structures and, and then see how those are affecting their behavior patterns over time. And it's, it's, it's extremely powerful as an observation practice, um, but it takes a fucking lot of work, a lot of time, and it's an extremely intricate practice. It, and it takes a lot of skill actually to, to make use of it. And so it's not really that accessible in terms of like making quick sweeping broad changes in culture. Mm-hmm. It, it takes like individual mentorship, a lot of personal practice and hard work and dedication, discipline. So I think save that the other, the, the other solution is it's, it's gotta be cultural stories. Like you, mm-hmm. like you put it, you know, we've got to start telling stories about how good it is to learn from someone with a different point of view. We've, we've got to bring back hero stories about bringing different, you know, diversity of opinions together. Um, also, and, we, also need, we also need to be with people, you know, we need, we need to like yeah. be with people, you know, and I'm also like, we need to be with, be with nature. I mean, we ask people to like have, you know, and I, I, I don't have enough of these relationships, but I'm like, how can we ask people to like have compassion for like nature you know, for instance, like, you know, things happening in rainforests and, you know, with dolphins and, and everything. If mm-hmm. we actually don't even have a relationship with the natural world, I was sitting out on this dock this morning and just kind of watching all like the morning routines of these like animals and, and you know, birds and insects. And I'm like, and this is just in like 10 minutes of being like, holy shit, like, look at all these things that are happening all at once, if we don't, you know, and that's just in a short amount of time, but it's like, if we don't have 
virtually any exposure, any of these things, like how are we supposed to have that like compassion for all things? You know, it's mm. like, then it's just what we've like seen on Seaspiracy or read in a book, you know, like mm. we, we, if we're not out there, like having some sort of like connection with it, you know what I mean? That's what I always, that's what I mean as well by like, always trying to knowledge our way through things, you know, that's why right. like people get frustrated where they're like, they, they try to give like a logic argument being like, well, science has proved this. And it's like, well, that's fine. But unless people like actually feel it and experience it through, you know, that real experiential knowledge, mm. like oftentimes it seems like that stuff doesn't seem to land. But that's just my observation. Right. Yeah. No, I, I, I think that's extremely crucial experiential wisdom or experiential knowledge, however you want to put it. Um, yeah. Grounding in an actual practical interpersonal experience. I mean, interpersonal pressure is huge. You know, the difference between going through something on your own, sitting, you know, reading something on, on your tablet or um, even in a book, if people still read those anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, di- the difference between that and actually experiencing a life lesson under social pressure in a group is enormous. Dude, it's huge. I mean, like, you know, I started, I mean, on a really simple scale, like <clears throat> I started baking sourdough while we were in Boulder, mm-hmm. sourdough bread. And I read all these websites about how to do it because there's like so many different approaches to like baking sourdough, you know? Yep. And that was all fine and kind of like got me aimed in some sort of direction. Mm-hmm. But like, I was not going to find any peaks to this mountain until I like put my hands in the dough and started like feeling it and understanding like, you know, mm-hmm. how to put the cuts in and, and this and that it had to like, it had to come from, from, with, from the experience. Sure. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I remember I was in sixth grade, I think. Uh, and we went to, we went to a camp, like it was kind of like a school vacation thing where I think we spent like four days or something at this place in like the middle of the wilderness in Massachusetts, it's called nature's classroom. Mm-hmm. And, and so we're just young, these young kids staying in log cabins out there in bunk beds, you know, and all of the lessons that we, cause it was like school, but in nature. And so all the lessons that we did were in some way, very tactile and they were movement oriented as well. And so instead of being, lectured at about the revolutionary war we would actually have to act out a battle of the revolutionary war in groups mm-hmm. and i tell you what it was sixth grade but i still remember that shit you know well it's almost like you know when they talk about i know i'm, I'm always fascinated with all things like play related and, ki- and kids and stuff but like mm-hmm. there's a difference between telling a kid don't push that other child and them actually going and pushing someone and developing empathy by watching the hurt, yeah, the, a, a moment. And obviously, like we don't want anyone to get hurt, but like it's those it's those kind of those experiences that develop that thing. We can we can be told all the things we want, but it's just it's not there, you know. And like I think of um, right. I don't know if you've ever watched uh, Chef's Table. Have you ever seen that show? I know it, but no, I haven't seen it. Yeah. They did this barbecue one and they, they found this woman who's like a famous pit master in South Carolina or something. She's like in her eighties or nineties. And she's like the number one pit master. And she shows mm. up like twice a week and, and makes barbecue at like 4am. 
Mm-hmm. But they show her and she's like, you know, shoveling the coals in and everything. And she goes to take the temperature to see if it's ready to cook. And she doesn't use a thermometer. She just walks over and kind of puts her hand a few inches above the grill. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, it's not ready yet. She can mm. just like feel it with her hand, you know, like so That's many so interesting. Yeah, so many of these like knowledge things that like give us like this kind of advanced information and there's just so, they're, they're new technologies. We got by so far by like that experiential knowledge or wisdom, you know? Mm. I, had a, I had a very strange experience the other day watching uh, Ben Greenfield on his Instagram. Do you know who Ben Greenfield is? No. Um, he's like this sort of like new age biohacking guy mm-hmm. who... Who, who's really into longevity basically. And so he does all these kinds of experiments on himself and he's always up with the newest technology and the newest treatment of this or that, or yeah. And he's always talking about, yeah. Ozone therapy and peptides and this supplement or that supplement and um, this new piece of equipment. So I'm watching him and he described his sort of like morning, what he calls his like morning spiritual routine. And, um, this is not a criticism of him. Maybe it works for him, but there was something in the, my feeling about watching it. Um, he described his routine and was like, okay, so what I do is I sit down and I, and I have this journal. So he showed the journal. He's like inside the journal has like a a Bible passage, right. From, from, um, I don't know, whatever book that he's working on that month. And, and then it has like a section below it where he can write out the um, where he can write out his reflections and his ideas about it. And so, and so he's talking about this and then all of a sudden he says like, I use this app. Right. Um, And he like uh, he drops the app name or whatever. And he says, it's like a 12 minute timer or something like this. I I forget how long the total duration was, but then he, he went and he broke down every, like every single minute of his time. He's like, I set the timer for this and there's a bell that goes off every like, two minutes. He's like, I use the first two minutes to read the passage and reflect on the passage. And then the bell goes off. And then I use the next two minutes to like, uh, you know, start writing about the passage or something like this. And then the bell goes off and I use the next two. So he like described this in terms of a very regimented, like, and, but he's completely dependent on the timer and the app to get this done. And I'm thinking like, man, would it be so goddamn hard just to sit down <laughs> and like, enjoy your morning journaling? Like what's, you know, you, you don't have a job. First of all, your job is this bro, you know, like (laughs) second of all, why are you going to, I mean, I get it. If you're a very, um, if you're a person who's high in orderliness in terms of psychological traits, um, maybe that's conducive for you. I I don't know to, to actually, to, uh, what do you call it to compliance, but like, it was just a feeling of watching it. I'm like, man, yeah. What you said about the, putting her hand above above it to feel the temperature really reminded me of that it's like there's so many things that we're losing it's like it's like measuring macros Mm -hmm. and counting calories you know it's the Mm -hmm. same it's the same phenomenon yeah it's like so much of just like trying to to knowledge our way and i'm like listen we've been exploring knowledge i mean you're a history buff so like you can tell me how long we've been like you know in the world of science and logic and things but in terms of the the mass of like human existence and and 
you know, the existence of the planet and all the tinkering that's gone on for billions of years, it's actually a very small fraction. So we have yeah, this like, yeah. we have so much intelligence that's actually mm. part of our evolution that's brought us to, to this point. And it's almost like, no, 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 no. In the last few hundred years, we have learned better. We know better than all of that, that complexity and tinkering that has gone on, gone on over billions of years. And I'm not saying that it shouldn't matter, but I'm like, there is this like dance that can happen between the two, you know? Mm. And that's how I often think about like, you know, the, the dance between like the, like the self one and the self two, right? Like okay. there's, there, 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 there can be a dance. To me, it's like, it's not, and this is for me, it's not all about identity or ego. And it's also not all about dissolving the self. I'm like, well, from an evolutionary perspective, we've kind of come to this place where we have these two and how do they dance? How do they play together? How are they like two sides of the same coin as opposed to like pulling this like American thing or Western thing or whatever it is, modern day thing where it's like all one way or all the other way. Right. I think the jump, yeah, the way you put it is very interesting because the jump to a normative claim Mm -hmm. is too fast. Mm -hmm. It's too fast. Let's start with descriptive, you know, like, because the problem when you jump to a normative claim straight away, oh, this, this should be this way, or this shouldn't be that way. It's like, okay, yeah, but you haven't dealt with the description yet. You don't even understand the situation. And already you want to say that this shouldn't be the case, but it is the case. Mm -hmm. We are here. This is the situation. So, so what, you know, like, what does that mean? Can we get into the texture of that? Can we really get to know it? And then from there, we're, I think, much more equipped to make normative claims about the way we want things to go. But I think people are, in general, are, including myself, are, are much too fast to jump to jump to the normative. And you see that a lot in like woke culture as well, with their focus on ethics over everything else. It's always a normative claim first. Mm-hmm. That's disturbing to me. Yeah. What, um, like, what are, what are some examples of like some of the, the, the claims that you've, you've observed that, that kind of throw up a red flag for you? Uh, specifically in woke culture? Yeah. I'm curious. Yeah. So it's like mostly judgments about people and their motives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like when they, for example, when somebody um, gets, uh, gets attention for a tweet that they made or, a line from a book that they wrote. People are very quick to jump to um, deciding what that means in the broader context. So they skip, the, they skip an intimate description of the thing. They just judge it very quickly. And they think, okay, this is what it means. And, uh, and then it almost immediately, almost within the same fraction of a second, they've already decided, or maybe even the, the normative judgment precedes the descriptive judgment. They've already decided that it shouldn't be there, that it shouldn't be that way, that they shouldn't have said it, that they shouldn't think this, that they shouldn't say this. And so um, then, so then perhaps they skip the description because that motive is already there. I don't know, but it could also be that they just make a very brash, very quick uh, 
very drunk decision about the meaning of the thing and then mm. um, immediately move on to, okay, well, that means that it should or shouldn't be this way. Um, like if, for example, there's a uh, man, I'm terrible with names today. Mm-hmm. There's an, uh, I forget the guy's name, but he was, he, he started out in his uh, sort of IT journey. He was in a sort of Silicon tech, uh, Silicon Valley tech uh, world. Um, started out as a, y, at a, at a uh, part of a Y Combinator, right? And was working for all these tech startups. One of them was Facebook, right? Before it was a public company even. Saw, saw Facebook go public, blah, blah, blah. Ends up working for Twitter as well. Uh, goes on eventually to get a deal with Apple. And in between all of that, um, he wrote a book. And the book was a memoir. So he, he wrote uh, stories about his life and also about his experience in the IT world. And, and in, he included personal details in his life. And, and part of those personal details was his dating life. And so he was uh, living in San Francisco, Bay Area, and was thinking and was uh, describing this girl that he met. And he was like, you know, this girl that I met, she was, she was, uh, she was six foot tall, barefoot, towering over me in heels, really sort of textured and rough. She had backpacked for years and her eyes were sharp green with like red specks, like that uh, girl on the National Geographic cover, just mm-hmm. intense green eyes. And so he's describing all these like beautiful characteristics about her and how she's kind of straightforward, honest. She's well-traveled. She's really, she has worldly knowledge. You know, she's, she's got texture and grit. Mm-hmm. And then he contrasts that and he says like, it, you know, in contrast to other girls in the Bay area, which are typically, you know, all, all the other girls in the Bay area, which are, um, how did he put it? Um, faking their worldliness and just otherwise full of shit or something like that. I can't remember the phrasing that he used, but anyway, so he gets hired by Apple. This is like three years after he's written this book and um, you know, he gets, uh, attention for this particular line, even though Apple, the, the, the company and the people at uh, the employees at Apple knew that he wrote it before they, he even went on the team. Once he's there working with them for some months, maybe four months, um, this, this line from that book, which is really like a very, very, it's, it's his dating life is a very small fraction of what the book is about. It's not really about that at all this particular line gets attention. And then the people at Apple, particularly the female community at Apple starts, start labeling him as a misogynist, as a sexist. And they decide that, that they they don't feel safe around him in the workplace. And so there's this petition now with hundreds of Apple employees to get him fired because they don't feel safe working with him Hmm. and it works and he gets fired. And so, and, yeah, he was on this podcast that I was listening to speaking about this experience. And I thought, wow, they were so quick to judge what that line meant without even having a conversation with him about it. Well, and the other part is like, I mean, I, again, like I said earlier, entering conversations with like compassion. I think mm-hmm. that, and, and I think this is definitely my own learning thing. And, you know, again, maybe you can relate to it, but it's like, I don't know. I, I, I wish to give people the benefit of the doubt, mm-hmm. you know, and, and whether it's compassion or benefit of the doubt, and maybe sometimes they're the same thing. Like when, when we look at things that way, it, it opens space for a conversation. So maybe if, if people were 
a little more benefit of the doubt and they could talk about it, they either may understand where he's coming from or it may end up being, oh, hey, once we chatted about it, he actually said to said that, oh, like, you know, I actually realize where you're coming from. And mm-hmm. if I wrote this book today, I wouldn't, I wouldn't write that in there or, or right. something. I would but, have said it differently, whatever. But it, yeah. you are right. It does. It, it always jumps to the most extreme, like get the hell out of here. I yeah, think about like, what, I think about my early days, like in stand up, like 2003, four, five, six, seven, eight, before like all of the internet and everything. I'm like, I don't know. Yeah. I don't know anybody, including myself, who would have survived past that if <laughs> if these things were were happening yeah. in this way. You know, it's a it's a, and I've talked to friends who do stand up, and they say it's like it's it's a delicate and kind of scary time because mm. you know that's the place where your your responsibility to some degree is to speak recklessly. Yes, yeah, for sure, and I, I would say that it's not limited to that field either. Mm-hmm. I think we have a responsibility to speak recklessly, you know, in doses in other contexts as well. But, you know, so, so what concerns me and what I'm, what I'm, what I've been thinking a lot about lately is like, why, why is it that the first thing we do is to assume and instead of ask a question, like, and I, I get it. It's a practice. Like, but but how do we how do we shift that behavior? Because I've made a conscious effort lately, especially now, having I don't know close to sixty thousand followers on Instagram. It was like uh, I don't know upwards of sixty five at some point, and you know, so I get a lot of interactions, a lot of comments, a lot of direct messages. So like, in the course of a year, there are a lot of conversations that happen. So it's a lot of practice for me. So I've made an active practice of when someone someone writes to me with a comment or a direct message, or we start a conversation and I feel like they're either not understanding me or their perspective feels very far from what I think is correct. The first thing I do is ask a question mm-hmm. and I've made this a habit mm-hmm. and I ask, and, and that often leads to asking two or three more questions as well. I should, I should say, and it's, it's made so much difference in terms of the quality of the conversations that unfold. Hmm. It really has like, so I don't know how we can, we can get people to do that or get them to do that. It's like, it feels like I'm coercing them, but you know what I mean? Yeah. It's a, it's a, it's a, it feels to me like there's often like a lot of walking through the world with certainty, you know, mm-hmm. like I'm certainly right. And you are certainly wrong as opposed to walking through the world with a little bit more. I don't know, you know, mm-hmm. and you know, I, I, I appreciate the posing of questions because that's how, that's how improvisation works, right? That's how free play works. It's like, if we make a statement, the, the improvisation or the free play is over. We right. almost need to constantly be like posing new questions to, to keep the, the play and the research going. Yeah, that's why I appreciate watching crowd work so much. Mm-hmm. When comedians do crowd work, I love it especially guys like Andrew Schultz, you know, because he really uses questions to set up the context for a really meaningful kind of interaction in such mm-hmm. a brilliant way. Do you ever, do you ever watch Andrew? Um, I started doing stand up with Andrew. No way. Yeah. Yeah. I may, I may still have his number in my phone. I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah. So I mean, way, way back, but um, 
yeah, I mean, that's, but that's so much of the thing, you know what I mean? Like we have to, you know, certain certainty is, is, is punctuation, you know, that's like an end. And, and I, I think that there's, I think there's a certain arrogance that like comes with certainty, you know, I feel like we, for me, I just feel like the, the, the more knowledge or information we have, the better predictions we can make and mm-hmm. nothing seems to be a hundred percent, you know, like if I have some knowledge uh-huh. and some information, I can make decent predictions about things. But for me to walk up and say, I know for certain, I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> There's probably a lot more. I don't know to it. Well, that and, word, that word, that word arrogance really does capture something that it just struck me because when you say something like, huh, like for example, in your situation, you know, mm-hmm. if, if I, if I say to you, if you come into my movement gym and I'm an Edo affiliate gym, right. Mm-hmm. And I, and, and I'm a coach there. And I say to you, man, we just can't have you. We just can't have you here. We just can't have you teaching stuff. We just can't have you saying what you're saying, questioning what you're questioning. It's not conducive to the culture. It's not good for the community, whatever, so on and so forth. There, there's a certain arrogance to that because I've assumed number one, that I completely understand your position. Mm-hmm. I've, I've also assumed number one, that I know like chess moves, I know where all those moves go mm-hmm. and I don't agree with it. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? So it's like, mm-hmm. I, I take, I assume your position and then I know all of the potential moves from there and where that leads five, six, seven, eight, ten thousand 10,000 steps down the road. And I think, no, that's wrong. Mm-hmm. That's a lot to assume. Don't you think? Listen, I, but I think it's, uh, it's something we do a lot of, you know what I mean? Mm. Like, I don't know if you ever listen to like Daniel Schmachtenberger, if you've ever listened to him on a podcast, he nope. talks a lot about like the difference between complicated and complex. Yes. And we seem to lean more towards complicated when in reality, most of the things that we're dealing with are complex, mm-hmm. right? So he uses the example of something like, a forest is complex and a house is complicated, right? If I burn down the house, the house is not going to grow back. But if I burn yes. down a forest, it will, it will grow back because it's complex. Okay. And, you know, we approach a lot of these things in these complicated ways, as if you, like you kind of said, like complicated is almost like linear. I can look at like the route and see exactly what it's going to look like getting there. I can piece it together. And it's so much more complex than that. You know, like even this conversation you and I are having is so like richly complex. You're coming at it from 33 years of existence up to today. And I'm coming at it from 36 years of existence up to today. You're at 8.30 PM in Bali. I'm at 8.30 AM in Florida. Like, Mm -hmm. and then everything that has possibly happened to us in life, like converging into one moment. So for us to assume anything about where this conversation would have gone would be, you know, arrogant to some degree, but also like playing to just like a complicated worldview of being like, I can piece the things together. Sorry, I'm listening, but my, my dog is like, she's whining at me and she's like asking for something. (laughs) What do you need, baby? What do you need? Hmm? Uh, She just wanted a kiss. I think (laughs) she wants attention. I've been ignoring her for too long. <laughs> um, yeah, what, what that reminds me of too is that perhaps like this is something that I've been thinking, considering a lot lately. I don't know if you've heard of, of a guy named James Kars uh, who talks about um, 
Yeah, I read uh, his book. That's why I call my my workshop uh, Infinite Play. Oh, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, but go ahead. Cool. I'm a big fan. Yeah, and you know, guys like Simon Sinek talk a lot about his work, and I think if you also talk to Ido himself, he'd probably say that he has somewhat of an infinite mindset in terms of his what how he sees practice. But like, um, so what I what I find how that applies here is I think a lot of people, why they end up so certain and so close-minded as well and so threatened by opposing ideas um, and, and so quick to decide on things is that they're playing, they're playing very finite games. And so information for them is a means to the, is a means to that end is a means to whatever finite end they've decided they want to go to. And so that's all that matters. And then do you see what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's, that's why it's, it's such like a poignant piece of writing, you know what I mean? Like, it's like, there's a lot of finite play going on, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like the, this, this winning and losing game, you know, and, and Schmachtenberger talks a lot about this as well. It's like, you know, moving into the future, we need to look at a future that's non-rivalrous. Like how do we, how do we use technology to create a, a, a non-rivalrous society so that we're all supporting one another and supporting all the things around us, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to always trying to control, defeat, win, develop certainty, you know? Yes. Well, I love, I love also in terms of, uh, I was listening to Simon Sinek talk, talk to James Cars in the summer before he died actually. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was, he was, uh, addressing how he, he went into detail about how finite games can be contained within infinite games. Mm-hmm. Um, and I find that to be so interesting because finite games like rivalry can actually mm-hmm. be very productive and they can be meaningful and they can be contained within a more infinite game, given that context and given that meaning. Well, jujitsu is a really good example. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's like, you know, it's almost like I've almost gotten in the habit and when I talk about maybe a, a small finite game within in the broader infinite game that I'm like maybe presenting in like a, a workshop that I'm facilitating mm-hmm. is it's almost like, don't think of it so much as a win or a loss. Think of it as more like a skateboarder who's like falling or not falling. Mm-hmm. Right. When the skateboarder approaches like a technique or something or, or, or a game that they're playing, they're approaching it playfully. They're, they're approaching it, it with the willingness to fall. Right. Yep. So in jujitsu, if I get subbed, I don't mm-hmm. think of it as a loss. I think of it as like I fell off the skateboard, so that I can get back on and 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 play the game again. Right. And even to a certain extent in jujitsu, it's like you almost—I don't know about you, but for me, I uh, am very permissive because it allows me to learn faster. Like, so I'm going to let them have. I'm going to, I'm going to let them put me in bad positions, essentially. Do you know what I mean? Well, that's, well, that's approaching it playfully. Right. right? um, That guy Jenkinson, who I, who I mentioned earlier, he, and I, and I mentioned this so much because it's one of my favorite things. He talks about a little bit of like this cultural addiction to competence. Yep. And in jujitsu, we witnessed that too. We, we almost witnessed as opposed to approaching it playfully, they approach it in the like, addiction to competence way where it's like, I find Mm. my game and I play my game because Mm. I need to win so that I can go home and, 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 and feel like a winner because we celebrate winners as opposed Mm. to like celebrating like the, uh, 
the, the, the players. Yes. Yeah. And also you see that in a lot, depending on what, what, uh, what gym you go to as well. Like I know there are some gyms here in Bali where like the one that I, that I train at mostly rituals mm-hmm. is a very kind of um, it's a very infinite play oriented atmosphere mm-hmm. um, to use your terminology. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, but like you go to another gym uh, for example, like Bali MMA and they're, they're out for blood, you know, and it's like they're, they're, they're counting how many people they sub in the, uh, in the day, you know, it's like, and they, they keep in tabs and feel like every day is kind of a competition of competence. And yeah. So it's like, it, it right. you're, not, very, you're, not, you're, not, you're not celebrated for taking risks. No, you, you, it's actually seen as shameful if you lose or if you get, if you get subbed. Right. Yeah, I, I, these these are the, like the 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 changes that I wish for. You know what I mean? Like in 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 an, in a larger context. But it's so funny how we watch those things, kind of like like a Russian doll, kind of like start big but get smaller and smaller. And we see it in like the little like nuanced interactions, uh, conversations, like you've talked about in the jujitsu gym, where it's like it's it's always like this these like finite games that that aren't part of necessarily like a, an infinite game. Yeah. And that's interesting how that, that even within a culture, so we have like BJJ culture at large, which is very hard to define, but then even you have BJJ culture in Bali, which is a very small subset of that culture. And then you have different gyms, even inside Bali and the culture can differentiate so much, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, yeah, it's really interesting to see what really is uh, what facilitates those different mindsets and what creates that culture. Um, mm-hmm. It's questions that, and endlessly fascinate me. Yeah, well, I di- I dig that uh, that you're 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 into the infinite pl- um, finite and infinite games. It's a you know big well, influence. Yeah, for sure. Well, I mean, like to be fair to Ido as well. Like I feel like he really laid the groundwork for that those questions to be interesting to me because when I first discovered his work back in 2014, to, like something like that was the first time I really came across him. Um, what like. <laughs> what struck me about it was that he was talking about, he was talking about physical practice as, um, as a, as a medium for, as a medium for insight, mm-hmm. the insight or the, the, the acquisition of first principles was first. That was the infinite game. It's like, how am I playing this? And how, how, like, how, how am I using this in order to acquire broadly applicable insights? And that's never stops. I mean, he puts it himself. Like it's like a cloud, you know, mm-hmm. it's continually shifting. And it's also that the questions never stop and there are more layers and more textures. And so for, for me, I'd never, I mean, I'd never heard of anything like that before. The, the closest that I'd been was like being inside of the yoga context where the asana or the physical um, postures in yoga were really seen as a medium to self-insight. Mm-hmm. Well, idealistically speaking in practice, I guess it's a different story, mm-hmm. but you know, so that kind of opened that, that doorway for me. And then I found Ido. And then lately I've seen that more applied in terms of James Carse's work to, 
to, to different areas. And, you know, you've seen Simon Sinek apply that to business and uh, mentorship and, and, and leadership. Um, so, yeah, I think it's highly relevant and that's really cool. I didn't know that that's where you got you, the name for your, for your workshops. Your, oops, that's my blind dog bumping into <laughs> Well, that's, uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I think I, I took a quote right out of that book to put it right above the description. Um, I, I, I forget what the exact quote is. Actually, I'll read it to you before we kind of wrap up here. Oh, it's right here. So the quote yeah, that, I, that I took right out of there was, uh, to be prepared against surprise, to be trained, to be prepared for surprised is to be educated. Um, and I put that at like, you, the top of my description for the, for my, from the, the workshop that I present. Can you hit me with that again? To be prepared against surprise is to be trained to be prepared uh, for surprise is to be educated. I like that a lot. And, you know, I, I really do believe in like um, entering the world playfully, right? Because then we are, we are welcoming of surprise as opposed to trying to control it, which I think we, we see a lot. People are surprised is like stigmatized as opposed to celebrated. And it's like, well, what if it was celebrated? And we get mm. to walk out every day and be like, Hey, a lot of a lot of new interesting things could happen, and I'd love to be prepared for those things as opposed to I'm going to do everything I can to prevent surprise from happening. I suppose people don't know they're doing that, though. Unfortunately, you know. Well, say it's deep. I mean, this is a really mm. you know this is like how we're 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 raised and brought up. I mean, and I'm and even you and I can talk about it, and I'm certain. I do my fair share of avoiding surprise, even though it's the thing that I, I wish to welcome more. Yeah, but to a certain extent we have to, too, mm -hmm. as well as a survive, it's a survival thing. Too much, mm -hmm. too much surprise, too much chaos. And you know, we, we end up in big trouble too. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like we could go, we could go on forever, man. So yeah, we, we, we might have, we might have to do a part two at some point. That would be um, great, man. Yeah, man. Um, if people want to connect with you, what um what is the best way? Is it through Instagram or website? Yeah, to, to connect, it's definitely through Instagram. Um, I have a I have a membership option available on my website. If you want to get act, if people want to get access to my deeper ideas, I write like long form content there. Like for example, I've re I've released like five, 10, 15, 20 page articles on there, twenty page essays. So you can really kind of get like a text uh, a sense of the texture of my thought and like what I really think about things on a deeper level um and also like more like instructional videos and stuff on the on the membership site that's devonpkelly.co that's dot co it's not dot com so uh dot com was taken and yeah but to connect with me just go to my instagram it's devonpkelly on instagram and uh yeah i mean like these days i'm mostly coaching narrative excavation mostly doing psychology work with people one-on-one -on -one. Uh, I'm keeping physical coaching to a minimum because yeah, I find the psychology work to be more valuable to people. So it's civic value. Yeah, I dig it. Civic value, uh, being a citizen. Yeah. I, I appreciate this conversation a lot, man. It's been, it's, it's been really nice to talk about these, these kinds of concepts that have been floating around in my, in my head and my heart for the last, you know, few years with uh with another coach who who is also actively thinking about these questions 
Yeah, I appreciate it as well. And so I, I see why why Bruce uh, suggested we get in contact. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's right. I, I almost forgot that he was the one who, who put us in touch. So, yeah, thanks, Bruce. <laughs>